This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Does it make sense, environmentally and economically, uh, to make uh, alcoholic beverages in a different way, then you can certainly argue that, that, that it does. But um, is there beauty in the, the traditional way of doing it? There most certainly is. As I mentioned last week, today we'll hear from a second guy who does a pretty great job of educating and motivating brewers to improve their process knowledge. This week, we look back at the last 70 years of innovations in brewing, we look forward to what the future holds, and we hear a pintful of great anecdotes from an author we're all familiar with. Hi, I'm Charlie Bamforth. I am Senior Quality Advisor for the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. All right. That sounds like a pretty killer retirement job, Charlie. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, in fact, it's a dream, really. Uh, I've always been a, a big admirer of Sierra Nevada, so when Ken asked me to join, uh, I, uh, I was quite delighted. A lot of modern-day brewers have never known what it's like to work with problematic malt in their breweries, <laughs> and that's really a result of the convergence of advancements from analytical methods, a deeper understanding of modification, and of course, improvements in barley breeding. Give us some highlights. Well, some years ago, um, uh, I was with the Brewing Research Foundation, which these days uh, is Camden BRI. And uh, we were a membership-based organization, and uh, they were looking at the value, uh, how much value had that organization brought to the table. And so they did a study of the most valuable work that was uh, done uh, at Nutfield, which is where the BRF was located. And of all the things we did, uh, all the, the work on fundamentals of yeast and all the work on hops and uh, right the way through to the genetic modification work, the most valuable thing that was done was the study on uh, water sensitivity. So if you uh, expose barley to, to too much water, uh, it sort of swamps it and it, it doesn't germinate properly. And um, so that's called water sensitivity, and it's detected using what is called the 8 mil test. Um, so there were some fundamental measurements made by uh, Essary, Kursop, and Pollock in the early 50s, um, where they, were, they were, came up with the germinative energy test and the water sensitivity test. A germinative energy test is, is where you have a, a, a Petri dish, a uh, piece of pa uh, filter paper, four milliliters of water, and 100 barley kernels. And you count how many uh, germinate over a period of three days. And that's the germinative energy. You're looking for 96, 98% minimum. But they double the amount of water. They increase it to eight milliliters. And they found that uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the grain did not sprout just because you put more water in. And that was water sensitivity. And I don't think anybody really understands 
what the mechanism is, what is actually happening um, in that, why that extra dose of water suppresses the germination. But what it meant was that uh, as a result of this, they could test the tendency of different barleys to display water sensitivity. And some were more water sensitive than others. Now, up to that point, what the, the maltster used to do was basically take the grain and sort of dump it in a, 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 a lot of water and uh, wait. But once they realized there was this water sensitive, sensitivity phenomenon, they uh, uh, introduced interrupted steeping. So you, you'd take the grain and you'd steep it, and then you'd drain off the water and bring air through and have an air rest and then uh, add the water back, maybe more iterations of that, depending on how water sensitive it is. And this meant now that instead of a process which took days and days on end, um, the steeping was now in uh, two days, and germination was much more even and homogeneous. And so basically it revolutionized the, the rate at which malting could be carried out. It was much faster. The turnover was better, and um, the quality of the grain was far better as well. So the simple test with a, you know, a bit of filter paper, a petri dish, and either four mils or eight mils of water was the most valuable piece of research ever done at Nutfield, um, <laughs> which is remarkable. Uh, and that's just one of the examples of the, the fundamental work that went into uh, studying barley and how to get the best out of it. Um, other, other work included abrasion and the use of gibberellic acid and, and these sorts of things. So now, um, far better understanding of, um, of the, the basics of, of malting barley. Uh, re quite remarkable. Uh, and, and of course, all of the, the fundamental work on the different enzymes. Uh, I myself, for example, did a lot of work on, on the cell walls and the degradation of the cell walls. There must have been a lot of bad malt before that <laughs> water sensitivity was figured out. I mean, what, what, what would it have been like to brew with that? You know? Yeah, well, I mean, all sorts of problems, you know, because the, if, the, if, the stuff, if the malt uh, isn't properly modified, then you're going to have lots of residual beta-glucan. You're going to get very slow runoffs. Um, the malt is going to be inhomogeneous. So, you know, some of it will be fairly well uh, germinated or modified, but some will be poorly modified. Uh, extra yields would have been low. Uh, Loutering rates would have been low. But I stress uh, that the paper by Essary Kirsp on Pollock was published in 1953, and I was, I was only born in 1952. So uh, I really didn't, <laughs> I didn't really experience just how bad the, uh, the malt must have been. You also mentioned some of the um, some of the changes that occurred in in respect to barley breeding. Why don't you talk about how that's how that's advanced? Well, still to this day, the the, the approaches to barley breeding are are comparable with what they have been for a long time. In the in the words, you take some promising parent um, plants and basically cross them, uh, and looking uh, for uh, promising new lines. Um, the work that's it's 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 really been streamlined and organised very very well um, across the world. Um, in uh, my native UK, uh, the institute, the old Institute of Brewing used to have a barley committee which coordinated all this. Here, of course, in uh, North America, we have the the American Malting Barley Association, and this is where you basically get all the interested parties together around a table uh, to to evaluate the new barley varieties to see whether they warrant being added to the recommended list. And it's a slow process. You know, it really is a slow process that uh, it takes some while. And when you first make your crosses, you don't have a lot of material to deal with. So there's been a lot of interest in, in developing tests on a small scale for, for picking out the promising lines from all the potential crosses. Um, thinking back, uh, people have looked at, uh, I think, all the acid viscosity tests where you, you basically make a, 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 an, an acidic extract of the tiny quantities of these uh, promising lines and you measure just how viscous the, 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 the liquid that you, the small-scale extract is. Um, and the more viscous it is, then that indicates problems probably with high levels of beta-glucans and pentasans and so on. 
Uh, and there was a lot of promise back at uh, BRF International, which it became when I was director of research there, a lot of interest in techniques like near-infrared reflectance. Um, you could use NIR to, to pick out um, uh, promising um, lines. And then, of course, progressively, you, you get more and more grain. Um, so eventually, you can do uh, pilot-scale malting uh, and brewing trials, and then um, all the way through to full-scale production trials. I, I think back to when I was with Bass in, in, in the UK, and we were heavily involved in the e evaluation of new barley varieties. And we, we gave it the sternest possible test. We, we uh, used to test the, the new varieties uh, in their ability as malts uh, to be used to make draft bass, uh, bass uh, in cask conditioned, um, you know, uh, cask conditioned real ale, as some people call it. And we tested the ability uh, of uh, the beer to be properly fined and clarified with Isinglass. And if uh, in these limited trials, the, 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 the fining ability in the casks was not uh, to our satisfaction, we would give that variety the thumbs down. And we were, you know, we were the biggest uh, of the brewing companies in the UK. So if Bass said no, then that was the death knell for, for a barley variety. Pretty, pretty damn cruel, really. Um, so so this, these approaches carry on to, to, to look for new um, malting grade barleys that have got better properties, whether they're more disease resistant or whether obviously they got higher uh, yields or extract. Um, and of course, more recently, people have been interested in uh, the flavor uh, attributes uh, derived uh, from certain barley varieties. Now, I'm always a little bit, um, uh, not exactly skeptical or dubious, but it's, it's a long way from barley growing in the field to the flavor of the finished beer. And so much is going to be uh, influencing that, whether it's, uh, you know, flavors developed uh, or removed during the malting process, kilning and so on, or the brewing process. So a simple relationship between the flavor of, uh, of uh, a, a barley and of a beer, uh, that's, a long, uh, that's a long correlation to make, if you, if that, for want of a better phrase. Um, now, the other thing we, we were interested in at the BRF International was uh, the potential for, for genetic modification of, of barley. And back in those days, uh, you know, we were firing ballistic missiles containing extra genes into into bits of barley, uh, <laughs> fairly crude. Um, but you know, there's an inherent skepticism and reluctance of brewers still um, to embrace uh, gene technology, whether it's barley or or yeast or what have you. Um, so that's uh, right. I want to talk more about that. It's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> right. what, do you, what do you think? What do you think um, the future of breeding looks like? If you you know if you let's say we 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 look seventy years out into the future, um, can you imagine things like? You know, artificial intelligence and, and other technologies sure. um, drastically overhauling the way that barley breeding works. Yeah, I can I can envisage that, um, and uh, as we get a far better understanding of the the genome and the genetics and selectivity uh, and uh, fundamental physiology, still, um, then uh, I'm I'm sure that will translate it, uh, it itself into more precise and uh, reliable. Um, approaches, um, but uh, at this point in time, the the, the the mechanism of making crosses is is you know very reminiscent of what it's been for a good long while now. I want to read a line from your article. You wrote, "For most brewers, the process of mashing and wort separation are now conducted in separate vessels rather than the mash ton of yore." <laughs> now. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true in large breweries, but I just can't understand why we still see all of these two-vessel brew houses being constructed for craft brewers in the configuration of mash tun and brew kettle, when a brewer could achieve a heck of a lot more process control by adding agitation to the brew kettle, a pump, and some pipe, which in the grand scheme of things shouldn't drastically change the price tag. 
Am I crazy or do you share in my disbelief? Absolutely right. It makes total sense. And that, you know, still in my native England, there's still many um, of the traditional, longstanding, um, smaller scale regional breweries that uh, still have mash tons. But of course, they're, 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 you know, there are significant limitations there. Um, you, your mixing is inherently dependent on uh, something like a steel's masher. You don't have the facility for temperature con- uh, regulation. You can't play tunes with the temperature. You can't start in with a low temperature for allowing the beta gluconase to work. You, um, you, 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 you not, uh, you don't have the facility for um, for, for really taking advantage of the science uh, that, that we, we understand now um, in terms of, you know, those people who believe in the importance of minimizing uh, oxygen ingress in the brew house, then, you know, there's a, a long way from uh, splashing uh, the, 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 the mixed grist in from a steel's mash, a steel, steel's masher to the top of the vessel, a long way to, to from that to gentle transfer uh, from the bottom and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, in terms of quality and in terms of efficiency, uh, I'm sure that if uh, uh, people do the the calculations, then there's every reason why there should be a sound investment in uh, in, in going away from a single uh, mash tun operation. Okay, let's hear about what else has changed in the brew house since 1950. Um, well, in, in, in one of the main differences that we're, we're going to have uh, in the brew house, uh, there are several. One is uh, uh, the advent of the mash filter, um, and uh, particularly the, the, the latter-day uh, Mura uh, mash filter approach, which um, is, is a remarkable uh, opportunity uh, for, for, for certain types of beer. Let me give you an example of that. Um, Guinness. Um, they uh, used to have um, an approach. They, they used to call it the Keeves, uh, which are equivalent of um, Lautertum. And as you know, Guinness has, has got a grist that is, is heavily um, rich in beta-glucan, whether it's uh, roasted barley or flake barley and so on. So their, their, their cycle time in a Keeve was hours and hours and hours. I, from memory, I think it was something like 16 hours, something like that. Um, by going to a mash filter where you basically can take heavy advantage of pressure uh, to squeeze out the wood, um, now you, um, you, you, the cycle time is, is much reduced. And therefore, for a product like Guinness, you can overcome problems with, with beta glucans and, um, and, and, uh, and turn around in a much faster time. Now, there's an old adage, which is, um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll choose my, I'll be polite, uh, the, put, put, Put rubbish in and you'll get rubbish out. Uh, so this is not an excuse. This is not an excuse for um, shoddy raw materials. Um, now, I'm not talking about Guinness now, but let, let, let's say that most people who say, well, if the beta-glucan no longer matters, then you know y- you can overcome uh, any problems. You have a hammer-milled grist, and that's the other thing that should go hand-in-hand with a mash filter. So you get much smaller particles, much better extraction. Um, and uh, you can squeeze all this word out in, in, in short order. Um, but remember, you put rubbish in, you'll get rubbish out. So you'll, you'll get more beta-glucan squeezed out. That's going to cause you problems downstream. And you're going to get higher levels of, of tannins, which you, you probably don't want, uh, being squeezed out uh, from finely grilled, uh, milled grist. Um, in a mash filter. And we, we at Bass, we did trials with a mash filter um, and we found increased fermentability uh, of the wort. And, and the reason was if you gr- uh, mill the, fis- uh, the grist more finely, you get better extraction of everything, including the very small quantities of the limit dextrinase enzyme that, that um, uh, breaks down the side chains in, in the amylopectin. Uh, and we're getting higher levels of the free, un, uh, uninhibited enzyme, and that manifests itself in increased fermentability. Now, of course, there's, there's ways and means of, of addressing that. But basically, you get a different um, product, a different word. 
And uh, it may not matter so much for a, a very robust, heavily roasted uh, beer, but if you're making something like Carling Black Label, a lager, and then it, it can be a problem. So um, again, it swings and roundabouts. Uh, so the advent of the mash filter, um, some people swear by them, and some people still believe that they, you know, they need a, a louder ton. Uh, I cite in the the, the paper um, uh, an article by John Andrews, who, who used to uh, own the Briggs Company in Burton-on-Trent, and he did an excellent paper, a side-by-side comparison of the merits um, of the louder ton and mash filter. Uh, then, of course, uh, there was the advent of uh, the Whirlpool, um, and that was um, uh, developed by the Molson Brewing Company. It's a paper by a guy called Hudson. And um, so uh, that was basically on uh, observation of uh, uh, something by Albert Einstein, who was watching his, uh, his tea leaves swirling around in a mug one day and watched them sort of settle out. And I like to tell students that he thought, what a great idea for the brewing industry. Well, I don't think Einstein thought that, but he did write a paper about it. And Hudson and others at, at Molson read it, and they came up with the Whirlpool. So now, um, instead of uh, um, using hopbacks and so on and so forth, the, the Whirlpool um, allowed uh, and, and led to the much greater use of hot pellets and hop extracts and, and so on, where you, you, you're not reliant on filtering through a residual hop material uh, to, to clarify that word. That's one of my favorite brewing history, you know, <laughs> relatively recent brewing history stories. We had, um, I was fortunate enough, we had Fritz Maytag on the right. show to talk about it. And he, he talked about how shortly after he got his brewery, uh, you know, off of the ground that he um, read about, read one of those articles about, hey, this newfangled whirlpool thing. Okay, let's put one of those. In, right. you know? And that really wasn't that long ago. Well, correct. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, I think uh, the exact. I think it was the early sixties or around nineteen sixty. I, I yeah, I think uh, the paper was actually written in the in the late sixties. So I, right. I think yeah, it, it was definitely developed sometime in the sixties. Right, so, right, right. Um, you know, if you'd asked me before that, I would have I would have guessed that the whirlpool had been around for uh, who knows hundreds of years. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know, other realms as well. Obviously, um, I. I losing track of exactly when something like the paraflow heat exchanger or the you know uh, heat transfer uh, cooling was was done that way and of course a lot of advancements um in in recent times in uh, kettle boiling um going away from uh, the the traditional ways and certain, certainly direct firing and so on. But m- a lot of advancement in, in recent years of things like the Merlin and uh, uh, the, the, the concept of applying uh, vapor stripping to replace sort of thermal energy and, and, and agitation and boiling, um, vigorous boiling, replacing it with purging off volatiles using um, vapor flow. Um, nothing new in that, uh, in that, uh, and for many years, I know as a bush have, have done that with Budweiser and the, the, the word stripper, uh, following the, the, uh, the whirlpool and, and basically purging off unwanted volatiles that way, particularly DMS, which, which leads me to, you know, the work that has been done. And we were very heavily involved in this in controlling things like dimethyl sulfide and how to, uh, control the precise level of individual flavor substances that are are emerging uh, through the process. I mean, the DMS story is a fascinating one because it's a great way to illustrate the the role that everything from barley variety right the way through to um, spoilage uh, of the finished beer can have a huge influence on the level of of this this, uh, flavor uh, volatile. Whether you want it uh, in beers like Rolling Rock, where it's phenomenally high, or if you you really hate it, uh, which is the case in in the very famous Australian beer. Um, And I I did a lot of work at at Bass. With Carling Black Label, there is a significant amount of DMS there. It's part of the signature flavor, uh, but you don't want too little of it, and you certainly don't want too much of it. So how to control it within 
you know, 10 parts per billion of the target value um, is is what we did and uh, illustrates how, how conscientious uh, brewers can be to achieve the same product every time. One topic that you haven't mentioned yet is some um, commercial enzymes in the brew house. Uh, how, how important is that? Well, again, it's, it's, it's like hopping. Um, uh, in that um, there, there, are, there are those people who are convinced that the very best products are made more traditionally. Um, and of course, I'm associated with Sierra Nevada and uh, firmly convinced that the, the whole cone hop is, is the best approach to, um, to uh, bittering and delivering aroma to beers. And everything I've seen um, agrees with that. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm personally not averse to pellets, but I'm not a fan of extract. Um, so the same sort of tradition and um, belief set applies to commercial enzymes. Um, you know, the, the attitude that um, we spend a lot of time worrying about developing the uh, endogenous enzymes in the malt and attention to the malting process and how to conserve them and get, make them work to their best advantage in the brew house. Um, let's, uh, let's take advantage of that. Why would we need to add extra enzymes, whether fungal or bacterial? Um, now, again, different breweries have, have different attitudes. Uh, at Bass, uh, we were very prepared to use uh, beta-glucanase, heat-tolerant beta-glucanase uh, in the mush. And the reason we, we did it was we, we found that it overcome, overcame subtle differences in, uh, in batches of malt. Um, you know, sometimes it, it wasn't going to have a big impact. Sometimes if the malt wasn't quite uh, as modified, well-modified, evenly modified as, as we would like, then the beta-glucanase overcame that. And we reckon that at the end of the, the, the year, we probably got about 1% extra extract um, from that malt. And uh, we were quite happy to do that. You, you use it in the, uh, in the mash, it's destroyed in the kettle boil. Now, one of the reasons that, that people are not hugely keen on uh, these enzymes is that uh, sometimes they are produced by genetic modification. Um, so the enzyme manufacturer is, is using gene technology to produce, um, produce these enzymes, and, and not everybody likes that idea. So um, there's, there's mixed opinions about them. I personally am um, certainly not averse to them. Uh, we've done a lot of work on them in the, in the laboratory at UC Davis. For example, uh, we did a lot of work showing that uh, if you're going to use beta-glucanase, you really should have uh, xylanase, pentosanase alongside it because the xylanase helps uh, expose the beta-glucan for better attack. Um, Perhaps the most exciting enzyme um, that's come along in, in recent times is is not one that's used in the brew house, but it is used in the fermenter, and that is ALDC. The, no, um, no, no, pro, prolyl endopeptidase or prolyl endoproteinase. Oh, okay. um, so, um, so this is the enzyme that attacks uh, the peptide linkage that uh, involves proline. So it basically breaks down the the prolimines, the the hordains from the grain or the gluten, uh, if you like, if you're using wheat. And of course, not only are these proteins that are significant for um, haze, and that's another topic, <laughs> um, but uh, also the, 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 uh, the proteins that people with uh, gluten intolerance are sensitive to. So this is a tremendously exciting enzyme um, in, uh, in, in, in potential production of, uh, of gluten-reduced beers. Now, you mentioned ALDC, acetolactate decarboxylase, and, and I, I find that an intriguing enzyme. Um, this is the enzyme that, that takes the precursor of the diacetyl, um, which is acetolactate, and it, it basically takes it straight to acetoin, whereas, uh, and, and you avoid uh, the diacetyl. Um, in, in regular fermentations, the, the diacetyl is spontaneously produced, of course, but the yeast then uh, takes it back and reduces it, converts it to acetoin and then to butane diol. 
So by using this enzyme, ALDC, what you're doing is, is circumventing the production of diacetyl. Um, now, I find that intriguing, but I'm an enzymologist, and I did my PhD on enzymes back in the early 70s, and so I, I just love enzymes. But uh, again, uh, not everybody is, is a fan of that technology. Now, if you're not a fan of that, there are some people view with horror what they used to do at a Finnish brewing company called uh, Sini Brikov. Um, and what they did was they used to take the, the newly fermented green beer um, prior to any maturation, and they would centrifuge off the yeast, and then they would heat the, the beer to quite a phenomenal temperature. I don't know exactly what it was. It's somewhere in the 80 degrees Celsius range. Remember, I, I only speak in Celsius centigrade. Um, for several minutes, and most people view that with horror, that you're cooking the beer. And then they would cool it down, and they would flow it through um, a column of immobilized yeast. And so what they were doing was, by the heat step, they were forcing the precursor, any precursor, they were forcing it through to diacetyl, and then uh, allowing the, the yeast in that column to, to get rid of the diacetyl. So now, in a period of, of minutes or at most a, a few hours, um, you're actually maturing the beer instead of the sort of the approach that some people have had, you know, of doing it for weeks on end. Um, intriguing. And the beer, um, the beer actually was, was a very good beer. People view, well, what about all the cooking you're doing of, the, of that beer? Well, yeast is a great friend of, of the brewer and it mops up not only the acetyl, but it, it, it really is great at mopping up uh, carbonyl compounds, things that give a, a sort of a cook flavor to beer. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's a technology that didn't catch on. I think Seabrickoff were bought out by Carlsberg, and I think they just kicked that technology into touch straight away. But it, uh, it's a good example of, of the sorts of uh, things that people are prepared to do. But in terms of commercial enzymes, again, um, I think if there's I think I think it's, it's the argument could be the same for gene technology. If there is something that can be done by taking advantage of this, and it can only be done that way, then people I think will seriously show interest in it. But if there is a, a an existing way of doing it, it would avoid any um, prejudice or controversy, then. You know, there's many brewers that would prefer to remain traditional. Coming up. I'm not sure if I can say this on your podcast and you can bleep it out, but like Winston Churchill said, I'd sooner be on the inside pissing out than the, uh, the other way around. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. 
Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. There's still not a whole lot on the master brewer's calendar, but with vaccinations starting to roll out throughout the U.S., there's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. That's pretty cool. Uh, you know, that uh, immobilized yeast column sounds interesting, but it sounds like a lot more work than just adding some ALDC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, you've got to remember that different people have got different enthusiasm. So I, I mean, yeah. Esku Paginan, who was the, the technical director of, of City Brickoff, uh, a, fi- a fine man, a great gentleman, and a chemical engineer. So, I mean, in my experience, chemical engineers, um, they, they've got some fairly um, strong uh, attitudes about uh, about how things should be done. I often tell the story of, of, of my old boss at, at BRF International, Bernard Atkinson, who was a very, very uh, stubborn uh, chemical engineer, brilliant man. But he, he really threw his hands up uh, it, when we talked about the brewing process. And he, he would say, Charlie, it's crazy. You, 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 you've got barley from a, a, a soggy growth location in, in Scandinavia. And the first thing you have to do is to dry it. And then you've got to wait for a dormancy to be overcome. And then you, 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 you steep it for a, you know, several days, put all that water in, allow it to germinate. Then you drive all the water off with a kiln. Then you have to let it wait for two to four weeks to, to so you can brew with it. And then you grind it up and you add all this water and then you separate the solids from the liquids and then you take the liquid and you boil it and you evaporate off water and then you cool it and, and all that cooling water. And, and, and he says, it's crazy. It's crazy. You should just take a bland alcohol source, make alcohol the cheapest way and, and tip in the flavor and the foam and the color from buckets. And I said, you know, Bernard, you've got no soul. And, and he said, yeah, but, yeah, but at least I, can, I, I know all about calculations and, and efficiencies and so on. And it really doesn't make sense. And when you think of, you know, the product, some of the products around these days, you know, the alcoholic They're teas. Just like that. You, you either make them that way, if, if taxation will allow it, or, or you, you make a very bland beer and you, you basically decolorize it and strip out any flavor and add flavors and, that doesn't make sense. I mean, Bernard's approach is entirely logical, but but it's it's not beer as I know and love it. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. And you know, I, I guess I'll skip ahead to this one. I was going to ask this later, but you know, you mentioned the term condiment brewing in your article. And I seem to remember you giving a uh, somewhat pessimistic presentation about this topic years ago. Is the is the popularity of hard seltzer accelerating the shift to condiment brewing? And if, if that time traveler that you wrote about at the beginning of this article, um, if, if he were to go, if he were to fast forward 534 years, instead of going backwards, does he still recognize his surroundings? Uh, Probably not. Um, You know, it, 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 an alcohol factory um, producing alcohol uh, as cheap as uh, uh, as possible um, and uh, as environmentally uh, robust as possible. You know, it takes a lot of water um, to to grow crops and to malt barley and in the brewing in the brewery itself. Um, um, if there's a, an efficient, cheap uh, way. Uh, of making potable alcohol 
and uh, then the wherewithal to play tunes with with uh, product um, diversity by adding flavors. You know, as flavor chemistry is better understood, as people understand uh, the precise way into, in which to get specific flavors. Um, and, um, and again, taxation will drive this at the moment. Um, you know, in recent years, um, products that I won't name, but some of these alternatives um, made from bland, uh, bland beers, simply because they're taxed as beers and not taxed as spirits, uh, which would be much more expensive. If all that changes, um, and if customer perception changes, and if people are not hung up on tradition, if, you know, if the customer doesn't care about how um, a product is made, then sure, um, there will be there will be plenty of people who will uh, embrace um, technology that is as simple as possible, basically um, rendering um, production to to uh, an alcohol factory and the application of, of flavor chemistry and, and essences and so on and so forth to create uh, the, the, the diversity of products. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm a, I was called a Luddite uh, in, a, in a meeting so while ago because I'm, I'm still a big fan of malt hops, yeast, and water. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not exactly uh, wholly in keeping with the Reinheitsgebot, um, so, for example, I love my um, my Trappist beers and the candy sugar and the kettle and all that good stuff, which is not in keep with the the uh, Reinheitsgebot. But I am certainly no fan of um, of uh, wackier products. Let's put it that way. Whether they are <laughs> beers with bits of animal dangled in them, or or whether they are, um, and I certainly don't like the notion of of this, uh, you know, uh, ersatz beer, should we, should we say? I did a paper. I did a paper on it myself and uh, uh, Jonathan Goldberg and Hildegard Heyman, uh, the sensory uh, queen at UC Davis, um, basically making a beer by mixing um, Smirnoff vodka with with various flavors and and so on and so forth. Um, and people said, Charlie, if you hate it so much, why did you do it? And I said, well, I'd, I'd sooner me doing it in a responsible way than, than somebody doing it in an irresponsible way um, and just showing um, that it is possible. And as I say, as, as, as flavor houses develop more and more sophisticated flavors, um, th then there's tremendous scope. And I realize that not everybody who who, who enjoys a, a, an adult beverage they're not all got the same mindset that i do and they're not all necessarily into um hoppy ipas or uh, or into stouts or brown ales or, or what have you uh, and they're quite enthusiastic about um ice you know alcoholic teas and and, and so on there's nothing new about it i mean bass i i in in my uh team at Bass, um, we had our new product development team, uh, and we did more work on things other than beer than we did with beers. We were designing all sorts of things, and we came up with um, basically an alcoholic lemon drink, uh, Hoopus Hooch, it was called, and, um, and this was in the mid-80s, and there were many people at Bass, and I was included amongst them, despite the fact that Basically, I was responsible for the, the new product development. I didn't like them because I felt they were being targeted at, uh, at younger people uh, and, um, and not with the caveats of responsibility. So um, I, I worry about it all. I, I worry about it all. But um, does it make sense environmentally and economically uh, to make uh, alcoholic beverages in a different way, then you can certainly argue that that it does. But um, is there beauty in the the traditional way of doing it? There most certainly is. Well put. All right. Well, let's let's take another look at yeast and fermentation. Let's go uh, look at some developments that are maybe a little um, more upbeat. <laughs> uh, so, you know, 
when we look at fermentation, there's the ubiquitous CCT, which we all take for granted. But that's a fairly modern development, isn't it? The Sonoconical vessel, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Leopold Nathan uh, was a Swiss. Um, I, I think the, the, the paper that uh, I, we published, I think it's, uh, there's a reference to it in there. Yeah, relatively um, uh, recent. Um, but still, um, I mean, many advantages to it. Uh, small footprint, these tall sonoconical vessels. Um, you can put a lot of them into a, in a relatively small uh, area. And of course, you don't necessarily need to put a building around them. So, um, so the, you know, you, you, the, in terms of construction um, costs, uh, in terms of uh, ca capacity and so on, there's a lot to be said for them. Um, but still, there are you know there are good reasons for why um, one still would, for certain beers at least, uh, adhere to um, vessels that have got less of a, a pressure. If you are wanting to have a high uh, ester level, maybe it's a barley wine or a hefeweizen, then you you don't want to suppress ester development by having too great a hydrostatic pressure. Um, so, um, you know, every, every argument for why they should be done in, in shallower, um, perhaps open vessels. Um, you know, people have experimented over the years with continuous fermentation. Um, to the best of my knowledge, uh, the only remaining one of any scale is at Dominion Breweries in uh, New Zealand, uh, where very sadly we, we lost recently Doug Banks, who was the, the, the big champion of that technology. Um, but Bass, before my time at Bass, they uh, uh, embraced uh, uh, continuous uh, fermentation, but uh, it doesn't really lend itself to um, uh, operation whereby you are putting out a lot of different uh, beers, a lot of different types of beer. Um, because, uh, you know, as Bernard Atkinson, chemical engineers would tell you, it makes perfect sense to have a continuous process. Um, but, uh, you know, probably producing a fairly bland product that you would then use the condiment brewing approach, uh, hop, hop extracts and bit, you know, whether aroma or bitterness and, and so on downstream to uh, color materials to present, prevent, uh, present diversity. Um, I, I would say in passing that uh, I, I personally don't think, and I don't know the reason why, but uh, at the moment, uh, beers made with a lot of extracts, I don't find them particularly drinkable, but that, that's a whole other line of uh, topic. Um, but, um, you know, it, brewers, what they have got good at is far better ability to control fermentations. Um, again, at Bass, uh, we did a lot of work with this. Um, David Quain, uh, Chris Bolton, um, who, of course, uh, co-authored the, the, the seminal uh, text on, on yeast, but a huge amount of work on controlling fermentations, controlling the oxygen presented to the yeast, and the the uh, control of pitching. Um, I like to say that it was Chris Bolton and I that, that basically brought the the ABBA biomass probe, note the pronunciation, it's not ABBA, it's ABBA biomass probe into the brewing industry um, because I drove the car to Aberystwyth and, and Chris was the brains. <laughs> but uh, this, you know, the use of capacitance uh, technology to uh, measure yeast counts in line, uh, we at Bass were the very first people to pioneer that. And now it's all, it's all over the world. So you can get much better control of, of uh, yeast pitching. And of course, um, you know, the, all of the work um, in, involved in inline uh, measurements generally um, is so important um, to, to certainly the larger brewing companies uh, these days. Um, in terms of control, in terms of efficiency of, of manpower utilization, and, and so on and so forth. Then there's the yeast itself, right? Uh, dried yeast has certainly gained a lot of traction. Talk about that. Uh, yeah, it has. And of course, the dried yeast um, uh, particularly is popular in, in the production of other types of alcoholic beverage, um, uh, wine guys. Again, um, it, it, it's it's interesting that um, most brewing professors um, are, are 
focused on yeast. I mean, I brought Catherine Smart into the industry. And of course, my closest friend in the industry, Graham Stewart, is a yeast guy. And, and, and so many people worldwide are yeast. I'm not, I'm, my specialty has never been yeast. I've done a lot of work on yeast, but uh, yeast is, is not particularly my focus. So I'm always a little, I always tease them a little bit about it. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great way to make alcohol. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, uh, and they would, they will, many of them argue that um, the dried yeast uh, is still not um, as desirable as, as, as liquid yeast. Um, and, and I will tell you uh, a story for, again, back from the days in, in Bass. Um, we, one of our projects was uh, to come up with a home brew kit, of all things. And uh, the beer we chose, we were going to make this home brew kit, was uh, a beer from Sheffield called Stones, Stones Bitter. And we worked on producing a concentrated wort, and that was fairly straightforward. But the real challenge was, uh, was the yeast, to come up with uh, good quality yeast. Uh, home brew kits uh, traditionally, certainly up to that point at least, um, contained uh, uh, dried yeast. But we, particularly David Quain, came up with a way of producing the yeast, um, a stable um, sachet of liquid yeast. And that was so critical uh, to producing excellent quantity um, uh, homebrew beer. Now, the big mistake we made was we made all these kits and we gave them to senior managers from um, Bass, including the chairman of the company. And he took it home and gave it his son, who was about 16, and, and said, play with that. And he made such good beer that uh, we kicked kill the project straight away <laughs> they said if if the beer so damn good and my son can make such good beer um who the people are going to stop going into the pubs and buying stones bitter so uh, project was was killed <laughs> off but uh, that's a long way of saying that um that uh, there are still many people who would advocate that uh, the, the the best uh, uh thing is to have uh, uh, is not to have dried yeast. Now, before anybody yells and screams at me, I have not uh, studied personally and not done any uh, research uh, in my time at UC Davis in looking at latter-day um, dried yeast. So uh, I'm certainly not saying um, that uh, in any way am I saying that uh, uh, you shouldn't use them. I'm just saying that back in back in that time in the the 80s that certainly um the products that were available at that time were were not up to snuff fair enough okay talk about the extent to which yeast metabolism is understood today versus say when your career began um more we're continuing generally whether it's barley metabolism or yeast metabolism or, or generally the, the chemistry and the biochemistry of of the brewing process is is increasingly well understood um, now obviously in terms of of, of, of brewing yeast then um, we, we have far better handle on uh, on its metabolism and its physiology and of course um, you know the gene has been um, um, uh, characterized and sequenced um, for brewing yeast. So, yeah, sure, we understand so much uh, about things like uh, the flocculation characteristics, which is immensely complicated. Um, a lot of work, uh, David Quain, for example, did a lot of work on glycogen and, uh, and uh, the metabolism and sterile production and so on. Obviously, the, the understanding of the, the pathways of, uh, of flavor uh, development uh, I'll talk about my own work, then um, a, a lot of work on how yeast makes DMS and the, the, the three protein system that's involved in making DMS. We've done a lot of work on understanding the enzymes that uh, deal with diacetyl. Um, and there are several enzymes involved there. Um, so in terms of understanding the, the mechanism, the pathways by which different flavor compounds are produced, for example, um, tremendous uh, knowledge uh, of that still um, uh, to this day. Um, uh, and again, I would throw out names like Graham Stewart and Chris Bolton, David Quain, uh, Catherine Smart, uh, Inga Russell, uh, and these and others have done a lot of work in uh, in really understanding um, yeast metabolism. Mm -hmm.
Regular listeners won't be surprised by what I think is the most important advancement, not just in terms of yeast, but in terms of, well, everything. Talk about genetic modification. Where are we now? Where is it going? And when somebody writes a TQ paper like this one in the year 2090, <laughs> what's it going to say about GM yeast? Um, I think it will. Um I've alluded to this um, several times over the years that uh, that if there is a uh, clear benefit, a clear uh, value to genetic modification of whatever it is, including yeast, um, that may, makes for uh, an improvement in uh, the environment or quality or, or even the cost, <laughs> then brewers will embrace it. Um, a number of years ago, I was on the Science Friday uh, program with Ira Flato, and it was just live from uh, from St. Louis, actually, and Doug Mormon from uh, Anosa Bush was also on the panel with me. And there was a live audience, and somebody asked the question, um, what about genetic modification? And what Doug said at the time was, um, uh, there is not a problem we face at the moment which needs that as uh, a solution. Now, again, uh, we've come a long way uh, from then. I was uh, director of research at BRF International when we uh, came up with the, 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 the first genetically modified brewing yeast that was approved for use. And the guy who, who ran that program was was called John Hammond. Um, I, I, my understanding is I never watched the movie, but uh, on um, the, the one where, um, is it uh, Richard Attenborough, uh, Jurassic Park is uh, cloning dinosaurs. I believe her character was John Hammond. But <laughs> this John Hammond uh, basically came up with a very simple construct. He took a little bit of... DNA from uh, one yeast and transferred it into a brewing strain. And that gene was uh, expressing uh, glucoamylase, the, the enzyme that will break down the dextrins, and therefore you can make a completely attenuated uh, beer, uh, a light beer, if you like. And we, called the, we actually made the beer in the pilot brewery. We called it Nutfield Light, L-Y-T-E. Uh, we couldn't spell light any more than Miller Light could be spelled. <laughs> um, but um, this was an experimental beer, and we presented the beer and the yeast and the whole story to a bunch of committees um, in the British government, and it was approved for use. And nobody has ever used it. Nobody's ever used it. And the simple reason is you can buy glucoamylase in a bucket and tip it in <laughs> and don't have to worry about labeling or anything like that. Um, you know, you don't have to put the words, you know, product of gene technology or what have you on, on the label. Um, so um, there, there, there is this suspicion. Now, I believe that you've had uh, uh, Charles Denby uh, on, on, on your podcast. And, Twice now. Yeah. And Charles came to see me um, at UC Davis and explained what he was doing. And he said, what do you think? I said, I, I don't think anybody's ever going to do it. But, um, um, <laughs> but um, I, of course, they will. Um, and we we got involved. I have, and it's amazing. Yeah, I've, I uh, yeah. I very recently um, used one of his products, and yeah. I mean, it's uh, the, what's possible is just it's, yeah. it's just things that aren't otherwise possible. Right? Yeah, well, we, we got we got involved, and, and pe people <laughs> said, "Charlie, you 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 you're not keen." I said, "No, but I'd seen a bit. I'm not sure if I can say this on your podcast, and you can bleep it out." But like um, uh, Winston Churchill said, "I'd sooner be on the inside pissing out than the uh, the other way around." And so we actually um, uh, we used our pilot Joe Williams uh, uh, in the the pilot brewery at UC Davis. Uh, he he made beers using this yeast. Uh, Brian Donaldson, a former master student of mine, did the sensory work on these um, at Lagunitas, and um, and the paper was published. And a very prestigious publication it was too in Nature Biotechnology. And yeah, um, uh, Charles is a great enthusiast, uh, is a very good scientist, a uh, very good spokesperson, and has got very interesting products, as you say. So um, 
that at the moment there will be those who uh, don't want to take that approach. Uh, that, but again, um, if, for example, it uh, it saves uh, um, saves the environment in some way, or uh, you know, presents opportunities that aren't otherwise um, available, and as long as public opinion is wisely informed. You know the this whole business of of gene technology. The you know the 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 such scare stories told. You know some people seem to believe that if they consume something made by genetic modification, that somehow they'll the, the gene will somehow get inserted into their their own chromosomes and they'll grow into a monster or something. Yeah, yeah. grow an extra ear or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 bizarre um, the um, the concerns that people have. Uh, and it makes perfect sense for, for certain things. Imagine, you know, where would we be in the, the world of pharmaceuticals if it wasn't for gene technology and the ability to make certain things using genetically modified organisms, which in your know, expressing expressing uh, genes um, and making products that otherwise would perhaps involve mass slaughter of, of you know, chickens or carbs or something, um, the, the, the possibility is immense. Um, but, you know, the reason I think, uh, going back to what Doug said all those years ago, uh, I think the reason uh, that brewers are suspicious is, uh, or, or is, is probably as much to do anything that they don't see that they have to do it that way and there's other ways of doing it. But for as long as people are not prepared to put in commercial enzymes, they sure as hell will not use genetically modified yeast now going back to bass again um we actually set up a biotechnology company called delta um uh, obviously uh, the bass headquarters is in burton on trent just 30 40 miles away uh, to make sure there was a geographical difference uh, or distance in, in nottingham we established delta biotechnology and the premise was to genetically modify yeast to put in extra value so that instead of you know selling off yeast for making marmite, you could actually use it to make blood proteins and and who knows what else. And uh, the, the 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 research team at Delta grew to twice the size of the research team at at, at uh, in the brewery. Uh, that in itself, we had thirty scientists working uh, with me on beer. That's you know you don't get any brewing companies with thirty scientists uh, these days. Um, but Delta Biotechnology was twice that size. Um, so Bass were perfectly prepared to embrace it in those days. Um, now, the economics didn't pan out. Uh, it just was easier to, to not use surplus brewing yeast um, to, uh, uh, as the vehicle. Um, but in terms of brewing applications, then through people like uh, Charles uh, Denby, um, I think we're, we're seeing a, a way forward. Um, that um, is intriguing. Agreed. All right, Charlie, I could talk to you for another couple of hours. I'm really enjoying this, um, but unfortunately, I only have about 10 more minutes. I got um, I got contact traced a few days ago, so I have to go get my COVID oh, test yeah. here uh, in a little bit to hopefully rule that out. I had a mask on the whole time, so fingers crossed. But okay. um, So I guess the last couple of questions I have for you are, um, I want to I definitely talk about beer quality in general. And so the question I have for you there is, um, I guess, talk about talk about some modern developments in regards to beer quality. And would you say that the improvement of beer quality has been linear throughout the, the time period in question here? I don't believe that uh, it's been linear. There have been certain surges. Uh, and certainly there has been... Um, <laughs> Bizarre, to my mind, um, shift. Um, and of course, what I'm talking about now is is, is hazy um, beers. Um, now, a bass. If I, as I, 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 I was responsible for new product development. If I'd suggested we come up with cloudy beer, I'd have been out the door um, pretty quick. <laughs> um, we spent such time uh, worrying about clarification, worrying about filtration of certain types of beer, worrying about the clarification of cast condition nails and the fining and whether the Isinglass, how much Isinglass we need to settle out the um, the sediment and fluffy bottoms and all that stuff. Um, 
so now it's, I find it bizarre. Um, I, I, I long since advocated a, a light box in, in the quality lab to, to, to look at the clarity of beer. So you have a light, you have a shelf, a light behind it and black strip, and you put the beer on the shelf and you look at the black strip and you're looking for a crisp lines, a brilliant uh, clarity in the beer. Uh, these days, uh, the test is, can you see the black line? Um, <laughs> um, yeah. These beers taste fantastic. I mean, they, they, they really do taste beautiful. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm well uh, I, I, I like my bright beers, but so I, I tend to drink these with my eyes shut. So the, the whole concept of quality is in that in itself almost turned on its head. Um, but in terms of you know quality, is, I mean so, so many diverse topics. But uh, we uh, have done a huge amount of work on foam over more than forty years, um, and I think we've come a long way into uh, understanding the the chemistry and the biochemistry of foam. But still, the the, the single most important thing you, you you should do is make sure you pour it into a clean glass, and and you pour it properly. Um, and yeah, there's been some developments in uh, the dispense technology and different you know, nucleating glasses uh, and so on. But fundamentally, um, it's it's what happens in the bar, which is far more important than any work that I, I've ever done on the proteins or the you know the interactions that they have with the eyes. Well, for us, it's I, I believe it's important work, but fundamentally, everything is made or, or destroyed um, by how that beer is poured out. Um, now, the big challenge uh, still is is flavor stability, um, and again, um, we have we've come a long way. Uh, myself and Roy Parsons, we were the first people back in 1984 to talk in any detail about uh, oxygen radicals and reactive oxygen species um, as the cause uh, or a significant cause of flavor and stability. And, and I think we understand a lot more now about the, the chemistry and the biochemistry of flavor change. But even so, still, um, the simple two simple rules are keep out the oxygen and keep it cold. Um, because those are the two most important things, oxygen in the end product and, and keeping the beer cold as, as, as much as possible before it uh, gets to final dispense stage and then get it to the right temperature for that. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the common sense things are, are still prevalent. Um, we, st we, we know a lot now. Uh, over the years, we've we've delved into the chemistry and the biochemistry and the physics and these things in, in great detail. But still, um, the solutions um, are, um, are are quite stri straightforward and quite simple. Um, but yeah, with flavor stability, it would be wonderful if we could come up with some magic bullet. Um, but uh, at this point in time, I'm at lo loss to find out what that precise magic bullet would be. That was Charlie Bamforth here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want to hear more from Charlie, check the show notes. You'll find a link to his recent TQ article, which this episode was based on, as well as links to more than a dozen books that he's authored. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.